of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed-indexed quarterly edited journal by Yale medical graduate and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the field of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focused topic, and through the YJBM podcast, we will take you through the past, present, and future of the issue's subject matter. This episode on immortality is part of our series devoted to our December 2019 issue on death. I'm your co-host, Kelsey Castle, a second-year graduate student in epidemiology. And I'm your co-host, Carrie Ann Davison, a second-year graduate student in genetics. The latest issue of the YJBM Journal explores the concept of death from a variety of multiple disciplinary angles. When thinking about the basic biology of death at the cellular or organismal levels and the ethical, medical, and legal consequences, it is difficult not to ponder the opposite of death, immortality. In this podcast episode, we wanted to have some fun exploring what it means to be biologically immortal. After all, humans' quest for biological immortality has inspired countless works of literature, art, and legend throughout history. I've always taken a particular interest in Faustian figures. For example, in Oscar Wilde's famous novel, Dorian Gray evades aging for 18 years while his portrait grows old instead. I'll also never forget reading Tuck Everlasting over and over again in middle school as one of numerous stories about a fountain of youth. In elementary school, we probably all learned the now debunked as fictional legend of Conquistador Ponce de Leon, who searched for a fountain of youth in what is today Florida. In Punta Gorda, Florida today, you can still drink from the rumored fountain of youth waters, although these waters smell of sulfur and are labeled with a large sign from the health department to drink at one's own risk. Testing by the EPA in the 1890s revealed high levels of radium, but don't worry too much, although they are double the maximum level set in the Clean Water Act, it won't kill you if you decide to drink a cup or two. And as all those who drink these sulfur-smelling waters know, there's no magical fountain of youth and we cannot con our way into achieving biological immortality. Um, Here comes a five-second spoiler for Dorian Gray. He dies old and wrinkled, knife and heart and Ponce de Leon died in 1521 of an infected arrow wound. Still, we as a society continue to search for ways to prolong our life and reverse aging, often resorting to unfounded, even dangerous, and commonly expensive means. Our desire to slow and even reverse the aging process fuels numerous offshoots of today's health and wellness industry. In recent years, we have searched for a fountain of youth in the blood of young people. Companies are charging large sums of money to transfuse the blood of teenagers into persons over 35, and other companies are selling unproven and unapproved stem cell therapies. The FDA warns against both procedures, as we do not have any data from well-designed, controlled human studies on the efficacy or safety of such procedures. Furthermore, both are invasive and can be dangerous particularly carrying a risk of infection. What companies are transfusing teenagers' bloods into humans, into, like, adults? So one, um, one company is a San Francisco-based startup called Ambrosia, selling young blood transfusions for $8,000 starting in 2016. Our society is prone to looking for a miracle cure to the aging process in fad diets, expensive supplements, and novel, risky, unproven procedures. 
our concern for our lack of biological immortality reflects our broader thoughts and fears of death. Thus, the concepts of immortality and death are inextricably linked. Mark Twain wrote, Life would be infinitely happier if we could only be born at the age of 80 and gradually approach 18. Through the eyes of Benjamin Button, we might begin to see things differently. But let's imagine for a second that we could have it both ways. Say we are born into this world a baby. We age, naturally, and then when we become frail or we face an injury or a disease, we start to age backwards until we are a child and then a newborn again. From this infant stage, we would then begin to age forward, become a teenager, and then adult, and then when we're elderly or injured, the reverse life cycle would continue. Now, imagine all of this occurring under the surface of temperate or tropical ocean waters, and you've got the life cycle of a Turiopsis derni jellyfish, a tiny creature of about 4.5 millimeters in diameter, which is considered to be biologically immortal. Does this jellyfish actually live forever? Uh, no, not quite. Um, the ability to reverse an age does not mean this jellyfish can never die. They can still be victim to the standard aging process. Um, they can be eaten by predators. But it is in times of injury or starvation or other environmental stress that they're able to activate this reverse life cycle, where they actually transform from this single adult into a cyst and then into a polyp colony which gives rise to hundreds of genetically identical adult jellyfish. What is a cyst in this term? So how does the adult move to a cyst? Or like, what is the cyst? It's interesting because cysts in biology are different than cysts in medicine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the cyst is like um, sort of like a blob of cells that um, will attach to the seafloor. And then this gives rise to the polyp colony, which is more of a branch structure. And then from the polyp colony, the adult medusas kind of bud off. Um, and that's why you can get multiple adults from one polyp colony. And this is all made possible through the process of cellular transdifferentiation, in which one cell type, such as a nerve cell, is converted into another cell type, such as a muscle cell. While the Turiopsis jellyfish was discovered in the Mediterranean in the 1880s, its unique life cycle was not discovered until the 1990s. In 1996, um, a research team in Italy published an article titled Reversing the Life Cycle. And in this article, they first describe this unique age reversal and the role of transdifferentiation in the process. In a New York Times Magazine article by Nathaniel Rich published in 2012, one of the authors in Reversing the Life Cycle, Fernando Boiro, is credited with comparing this process to um, a type of metamorphosis, like if a fictional butterfly could turn back into a caterpillar and then back into a butterfly. Due to these robust survival mechanisms, the Turiopsis dorney jellyfish is spreading around the world's oceans in genetically identical copies. And because of this, it's actually become quite invasive. While the process of transdifferentiation to reverse aging is an important and interesting process to study, the scientific community is very cautious to speak of any medical implications of this research and does not suggest that this jellyfish holds the secret to the discovery of a new drug to reverse human aging. Still, by understanding why some cells do not die but are instead are able to convert to a different cell type, this may help scientists better understand the mechanisms that cancer cells use to evade death. Another organism of interest in the same biological phylum, 
cnidaria, as the Turiopsis stormy jellyfish is the hydra. In contrast to the aging and reverse aging of the immortal jellyfish, hydra just do not appear to age. In Greek mythology, the hydra is a sea monster with multiple heads protruding from its serpent body. If you cut off a head, two more will grow back in its place. Similar to the mythological serpent, the tiny hydra of reality has an extraordinary ability to regenerate. A hydra can be cut into tiny pieces, all of which will grow into individual hydra. At only about 10 to 20 millimeters in length, with tentacles at the, of the end of the tube-like body, the hydra is found in fresh water all over the world. It's probably even in the pond in your backyard. While hydras show no signs of aging, they are not invincible or truly immortal. They can die if environmental conditions are poor, such as extreme weather, or they don't have any food, or they get a disease. And they're also eaten and killed by predators, including uh, fish and some snails. The hydra is often called the eternal embryo. For comparison, let's think of a human embryo, the cells of which divide, renew, and give rise to all possible cell types of which we are composed. This is made possible by embryonic stem cells. Stem cells are specialized cells that have the ability to renew and differentiate into different cell types. Human embryonic stem cells are pluripotent. This means that they can give rise to all 200 plus different cell types in an adult human. Kept in the right conditions, they can also divide and replicate indefinitely. As adults, we still have stem cells. However, they are multipotent, not pluripotent. This means they, they can only become a subset of all possible cell types. A great example of this are the cells in our intestine. Populations of intestinal stem cells are located in the crypts of our intestine and continually divide and differentiate to renew the epithelial lining of our intestine. We actually renew the entire epithelial lining of our small intestine every four to five days. Is it also true that we're able to renew parts of our liver as well if it's like removed? Or is that just the Prometheus legend that Prometheus is thrown on the rock and his liver keeps regenerating? Yes, yeah, so according to an article published by the Mayo Clinic, um, the liver is one of the organs in our body that has the greatest regenerative capacity. Um, so if we donate our liver, a uh, part of it, um, we're actually to, able to regrow our liver to a full size. Um, but I don't really know much about the Prometheus legend or why they would uh, know anything about the liver regrowing. So many of us have heard about the Greek myth of Prometheus. So he was bound to a rock, and then each day an eagle, the emblem of Zeus, was sent to eat Prometheus's liver, which would then grow back overnight, only to be eaten again the next day. This is fascinating that the Greeks even knew that this was a true phenomenon. In fact, we can have almost 75% of our liver removed, and then it'll still regenerate. And so that's how we can do certain liver transplants and stuff like that. Um, it's still not exactly known why or how the Greeks knew that this was um, a true part of our anatomy and possible, but there are a couple of theories, one of them regarding how, um, how like, uh, wartime surgery and stuff like that and how the liver played into certain divination and other religious aspects of their life. Other parts of our body, such as our brain, do not retain this ability to renew as we age. Um, and furthermore, as we grow older, the cells um, in our body, including our stem cells, become senescent. 
What exactly does it mean to become senescent? So for a cell to become senescent, it means that it begins to deteriorate with age, and the cell, a senescent cell will lose its ability to grow and divide and renew. In contrast, the stem cells in the hydra do not become senescent. They retain their ability to renew. Three populations of stem cells, ectodermal epithelial stem cells, endodermal epithelial stem cells, and interstitial stem cells in the hydra give rise to all 12 possible cell types that make up the organism. Thus, the hydra remains the eternal embryo. If we are injured, we can't grow back a limb or an organ. If we were a hydra and we lost a leg, we would not only be able to grow back our leg, our severed leg would be able to grow a new body, a full clone of us. I should clarify that Hydra actually is describing a genus of invertebrates in the phylum Nidaria and class Hydrozoa. There are over 20 species of Hydra that differ in many characteristics, including lifespan. This work was pioneered by Paul Brand in 1953, who first reported the impact of sexual and asexual reproduction on aging in two species of Hydra. While this species Hydra vulgaris does not age, whether it is reproducing sexually or asexually, however, when the species Hydra oligactus reproduces sexually, it ages rapidly and it dies. By comparing these two species of Hydra, we can learn a lot about the specific genes and pathways that make aging or lack thereof in these two Hydra species so different. Further investigating the genetic factors allowing Hydra to both escape senescence and regenerate is an active area of exciting research. Furthermore, while their cells are continually dividing and replenishing, they do not fall victim to the typical consequences of overproliferation such as tumor growth. This makes them an exciting model for cancer studies. So the next time you pass by a body of fresh water, just think how many mythical masters of regeneration are hidden right at the water's edge. They're probably right in your backyard, and I know they're in ours here in New Haven. We have pondered immortality mechanisms through the transdifferentiation of the immortal jellyfish and the stem cell-mediated self-renewal of the hydra. When I think about science fiction fantasies of human survival and the preservation of humanity, I often think of cryopreservation. We've all seen the movies where people are put into centuries of suspended animation, kept frozen until ready to be awoken to colonize some new planet or escape a threat of the past and bring humanity to the future. One of the funniest examples, I think, is the 1940 movie The Man with Nine Lives starring Boris Karloff. The first scene is absolutely hilarious. A male doctor has placed a female patient in a state of cryopreservation for four days by simply dumping buckets of ice on her. This has allowed her body to heal while the doctor cured her cancer, and now to wake her up after she has been cured in front of an auditorium of physicians in an action akin to how I need to wake up in the morning, the doctor pours hot black coffee down a funnel into her mouth, magically reanimating her. Needless to say, the prospect of freezing our bodies to carry us into the future and cure disease has continued to fascinate science fiction fans. But we do need to clarify that there's a difference between cryopreservation and cryonics. Cryopreservation is the process of cooling biological samples to very low temperatures for long-term preservation. However, we cannot just simply put cells, organs, tissues, into the freezer and expect them to just be fine. 
require preservation is a careful process that must be done at the proper rate of cooling and later thawing. Simply sticking a biological sample, such as a vial of human cells, in the freezer will result in the formation of ice crystals. After all, cells are 70% water, and cryopreserved samples are stored below negative 200 degrees Celsius, which is well below the freezing point of water. These intracellular ice crystals will cause the cell, punctured and stabbed from within by shards of ice, to break open. Like antifreeze in a car, we often need a substance called a cryoprotectant to prevent these ice crystals from forming and to protect our cell samples at low temperatures. To make a long story short, all of these considerations make it possible to freeze human cell lines in some tissues, but not organs and definitely not entire persons. Nevertheless, cryonics companies in the U.S. and Russia have sprung up and will freeze a body after death in the hopes that in the future we will have the knowledge and technology to bring the person back to life and cure whatever disease they had. Cryonics is considered pseudoscience as we currently have no research into how to successfully preserve a human body without the formation of ice crystals, let alone bring one back to life after death. Just because we can't freeze ourselves and bring ourselves back to life in the future does not mean that other animals can't. We have known for centuries that some animals are capable of this suspended animation. However, we still don't fully understand how. A champion of suspended life is the adorable cartoonish water bear, also known as a tardigrade. About the size of the thickness of your fingernail, some tardigrades are nearly indestructible. There are over 700 different species worldwide, and they've been around for over 500 million years. They get their name, appropriately, by their shape and their walk. They look just like a little bear, just with too many legs. We can easily find water bears on liverworts and mosses, on tree trunks, in our own backyards. When we think about the environment in which these water bears are living, we must remember that most of the time the tree trunk is dry. When the tree becomes dry, an active water bear desiccates and forms a protective state called a tun. When it rains and the tree trunk is wet with films of water, the water bear rehydrates, reanimates, and returns to its daily activities only as long as conditions are wet. What are the daily activities of a water bear? <laughs> I'm walking around, yeah. looking for food. Staying hydrated. Staying hydrated. <laughs> Having a great time. Um, this process of drying without dying, a uh, few articles have used this phrase um, on the topic of desiccation. And this is a type of cryptobiosis, which means hidden life. More specifically, this is an example of anhydrobiosis meaning life without water. I think all of this is similar to how a seed works. The hard seed is like a protective casing and it can survive harsh environments, but when conditions are right and there's water and soil, the seed can sprout and grow into its active form. Due to its ability to survive extreme conditions, water bears have been found in volcanoes, Arctic ice, and at the bottom of the ocean. In 2007, they even survived the vacuum of space and withstood the intense solar radiation there. You may have seen the news articles um, last year about how tardigrades may have been left on the moon after spacecraft landings. However, no need to worry about tardigrades colonizing the moon. They can only revive from this protective tun state when conditions are favorable, 
which includes the requirement for oxygen and water, which isn't possible on the moon. Now the tardigrade, while seeming to survive the harshest of conditions, is too far from immortal. In order to form the protective tongue state, the rate of drying is very important, similar to how the rate of freezing is important for cryopreserving human cells. In an article published in the journal Molecular Cell in 2018, Boothby and colleagues showed that tardigrades need time to build up protective, intrinsically disordered, aka sticky, proteins in their bodies to survive the process of drying. If they dry out too quickly, they simply die. If scientists can figure out how tardigrades enter into and successfully exit the protective tongue state, it may help us do things like preserve human tissue and improve organ preservation for life-saving transplants. Many other organisms can enter into states of suspended life. Another well-known example is the deltoid rotifer. The term rotifera describes a phylum of invertebrates found in fresh and marine waters throughout the world. Like the tardigrade, they can also be found dried out on lichens and mosses. When organisms such as the tardigrade and deltoid rotifers enter into suspended life without water, their metabolism stops. To survive, they must replace the water in their cells with a glass-like amorphous solid in a process called vitrification. This avoids the formation of crystals that would break open and destroy the cells. In contrast to the disordered proteins used by tardigrades, certain species of nematodes, also called roundworms, can survive without water by replacing the water in their cells with the sugared triolose. Triolose allows the inside of the cells to become glass-like instead of sharp and crystalline. In my own research, I work with the nematode C. elegans. While this nematode species cannot survive drying out, we routinely freeze tubes containing hundreds of worms, slowly, and with a cryoprotectant glycerol, and we can return to these vials decades later and recover live worms capable of reproducing. While we cannot preserve humans to escape death or disease or propel ourselves in suspended animation to distant planets light years away, we can preserve parts of ourselves. I mentioned earlier that we can freeze and cryopreserve human cells, but I also mentioned that our cells age and they become senescent and lose their ability to grow and divide. Well, certain types of cells, such as cancer cells, have escaped senescence. The best example of this is HeLa cells. These are cervical cancer cells taken from Henrietta Lacks in 1951 without her knowledge or consent. And while the scientific community in recent years has been confronting the exploitation of Henrietta and her family, her immortal cells have led to groundbreaking discoveries, including the development of the polio vaccine, and they're continually used in research today, nearly 70 years later. We can now immortalize other cell lines by creating mutations that disrupt the normal cell cycle and allow these cells to evade senescence and continually divide. We clearly don't want immortal cancer cells escaping cell cycle checkpoints and continually proliferating in our bodies, but why do our cells become senescent in the first place? Isn't there a happy medium between overproliferation and age-related decline and renewal? Other vertebrates live much longer than us, and what makes their cells so special? The human lifespan was at one point in time, very long ago, much more similar to that of other species in the animal kingdom. 
Our ancestors that lived to be around 35 years old were living about as long as horses, lions, baboons, halibuts, and bears do today. As we extended our lifespans, our healthier lifestyles, and decreases in mortality due to disease, we're now situated at the extremes relative to many other species. We currently outlive Asian elephants, eels, mussels, alligators, rhinos, and camels. There are only a couple animals that are known to live longer than the average human, and that includes giant tortoises and most notably the Greenland shark, which in 2016 was recorded as living for 272 years, meaning this shark might have been alive in 1744. Greenland sharks live in deep waters of the Arctic and North Atlantic. Their max age of 272 years that is commonly reported is actually the lower end of a range that extends up to 512 years old. This is an estimated range, as we cannot ask the shark for his birth certificate. Um, their age is estimated using radiocarbon data of eye lens nuclei in the female sharks. Lens nuclei proteins were used because they are not replaced with age and do not degrade. The radiocarbon levels stored in the lens therefore represent conditions present when the shark lens was first formed in the womb. The radiocarbon dating relies on something called a bomb pulse, which essentially indicates if a fish was alive during the 1950s and 60s. The bomb pulse is the sudden increase of carbon-14 released in the Earth's atmosphere from the nuclear bomb tests that stretched between the 40s, 50s, and early 60s. Beginning in 1963, radiocarbon in the atmosphere decreases by about 4% each year, and this can be measured in the cells and tissues to determine age using an aging chart. Sharks born during the 1960s will then have a very large bomb spike, and the radiocarbon levels can be matched using the chart. Do they have to kill the sharks to get their eyes, lens, nuclei? Yeah, so the sharks that were used in this major study that came out in 2016 were dead Greenland sharks. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, our overall understanding of these sharks is pretty limited. It's not known how long their gestation period is, where they mate, what time of year, or even if they mate yearly. And the sharks only reach sexual maturity around 150 years old. Their sexual maturity is defined as having reached 4 meters in length. And for a shark that grows less than half an inch a year, this can take an extremely long time. Species with very long lives tend to share similar traits as the Greenland sharks, such as low fecundity, slow growth rates, and very late maturity. Combined, these can make a species very vulnerable and limited in their ability to recover from disturbances in their environment. So um, there's currently a lot of concern over how much longer the Greenland shark is going to live, especially with warming climates and stuff like that. Oh, no. The shark, preserves, um, the shark prefers very, very cold waters, less than 29 degrees Fahrenheit, although it can exist in waters up to 41 degrees Fahrenheit. It's also a very slow shark <laughs> compared to other sharks. So um, it often, the sharks that they used in this study in 2016 were sharks that were accidentally caught in other fishing expeditions. Like, do you think the fact they live in cold water is why they can live so long? Like, with my worms, if I raise them at cold temperatures, they live a lot longer than when I raise them at... They do. Yeah. It might be linked to their metabolism. Uh, the Greenland shark has a very, very slow metabolism, and that might be related to why they can exist in cold water, and then there might be this, like loop where if you develop a slow metabolism to survive at cold water, then you're sort of, that can help you live longer as well. Yeah. If I develop a slow metabolism, it's not going to be good for anybody. <laughs> no, or if I'm know. in freezing water, yeah. that'll stress me out more, shorten the lifespan. In addition to Greenland sharks, many of us might think of the naked mole rat when we think about very long-living animals. 
The naked molarite happens to be the longest living rodent. Based on its size, it should only live about six years, like a pet rabbit, but instead it lives for almost 30. There's an equation called the Gompertz Law that describes the risk of dying and how it increases exponentially with age, but in study by Ruby and colleagues published in the journal eLife in 2018, they found that naked mole rat mortality does not follow this equation. We don't know the exact reason for that, but naked mole rats do have an impressive ability to repair their DNA and have lots of protein chaperones that can help keep proteins folded properly in their cells. I just imagine, like, a school chaperone on a bus being like, no, no, cell, like, fold properly. Like, I think that's pretty, pretty accurate. Yeah. Like, follow them around, make sure they do the right thing. Yeah. Keep everyone in order so they don't <laughs> aggregate and clump and cause neurodegenerative diseases. Jeez. Oh, like prion diseases are protein misfolding. Yeah. Oh, so then they have something to actually modulate that. Yeah, same with um, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, Huntington's. Do they look at protein chaperones as a way to overcome those diseases? Yeah. Interesting. So a lot of the like antibody clinical trials are looking to like target and remove the accumulated proteins, but it'd be just way better if we could prevent them from misfolding in the first place. Yeah. What's really cool talking about protein misfolding is with the two different species of hydra, the hydra vulgaris, which doesn't age, and the hydra oligactus, which reproduces sexually, ages, and dies, um, they actually have different levels of one protein chaperone, um, which correlates to maybe why one can not age and why the other one might as one part start to age and die maybe it can't fold its proteins as well we have protein chaperones we have a ton of protein yeah but the the hydra also have uh protein chaperones okay and there's just like different amounts of one specific one Yeah. yeah and so they think that might be one reason why there's a difference in their lifespan very cool so what exactly does it mean to be immortal Thinking about the immortality of cancer cells and culture and cells and tissue frozen in tubes and liquid nitrogen makes me think more broadly about what it means to be immortal. Henrietta Lacks' cells carry her DNA each time they divide, and does this in a way make her immortal? Furthermore, are clonal populations of organisms immortal? The immortal jellyfish gives rise to genetically identical copies of adult jellyfish, each reverse life cycle. Hydra are cut, when they're cut, they can form new individual organisms from each segment of the original organism? And which organism is the original? Is the individual immortal, or is life carried collectively through a clonal proliferation as a colony? Plants, too, can achieve a clonal prolonged lifespan. The pando trees in Utah contain individual trees that have been growing for over 130 years, but what's More impressive is that the root system of this clonal population of male aspen trees is estimated to be tens of thousands of years old, making it one of the oldest organisms on the planet. The underground system of the fungus Arm Malaria Gallica, aka honey mushroom fungus, in Michigan is estimated to be over 2,500 years old. This is according to an article published by Anderson et al. in 2018. The genome of this individual changes incredibly slowly. This is described by the authors of the paper as being the opposite of the genome instability that's observed in cancer. However, the mechanisms for this genome stability and persistent lifespan are unclear. We can also compare scales of immortality. To us humans, the Greenland shark um, seems to have achieved a form of immortality, Yet on the timescale of the universe, its 500-year lifespan is short. 
If we compare our 80-year lifespan to the days or weeks a fly is alive, we seem to be immortal. Finally, while we as humans cannot live forever, our germline in a way can. At least until climate change takes over or the sun explodes in 5 billion years or so, whichever comes first. But the germline does not age as our somatic cells do. In the 1920s, geneticist Thomas Morgan described the collapse of an organism into a single cell. This is beautifully explained in Siddhartha Mukherjee's book, The Gene. We are able to collapse all of the instructions for the development into a new human into a single cell formed at fertilization, continuing the immortality of the germline and the human population. From this single cell, the zygote, we expand the pluripotent stem cells into an adult human until we collapse back into that single cell, not too unlike our friend the jellyfish. There are many people behind this podcast that you never get a chance to hear. Thank you to the Yale School of Medicine for being our home for the YJBM and the podcast. Thank you to the Yale Broadcast Center for helping with the recording, editing, and publishing of our podcast. Thank you to the YJBM editorial board, especially our editors-in-chief, Amelia Hallworth and Devin Washi, and the deputy editors of The Death Issue, which were me and my co-deputy editor, Wei Ying. Finally, thanks to you for tuning in to this episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback and questions, so feel free to tell us your thoughts by emailing us at yjbm at yale.edu. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share our podcast on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts. 